Yo, what is up, guys? Welcome to the Tony and Dakota podcast. Today, we got a special engineered guest. This is Tyler Derrickson. I first met him at the Real Estate Investors Association. Uh, since we've met, this guy is all about commercial real estate. I remember from three, four years ago, him talking about commercial real estate, commercial real estate. And uh, since then, he's acquired multiple properties in different areas here around Indiana. Uh, he's got a lot of knowledge, very smart guy. Uh, we are going to give you some information about him, interview him, pick his brain, figure out all sorts of things today. This is Tyler Derrickson. Thanks what for up? the uh, invite, guys. Yeah, welcome, man. Glad we to be here. We figured out the third camera, so now we get uh, we get multiple different views for you guys. You're the first person that gets three cameras, so. Wow, feel special today. Yeah, that's a big deal. Now I gotta just remember which ones we're on. Uh, Dakota mentioned that you were an engineer, so I did a little bit of research, and yeah. just looking on Facebook, it looked like you'd studied industrial engineering uh, at South Dakota School of Mines and Technology. Yeah. It's like mines. Does that mean like going down in mine shafts and that sort of thing? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I grew up in Minnesota. And then uh, during the uh, financial crisis, I wanted to become a banker and stuff like that. And my dad was like, no, he's like, that's stupid. Like, go get your <laughs> engineering degree because engineers are always going to be required. So uh, the School of Mines was like one of the high quality schools out there. So we went out there. Uh, it was a school that was originally founded for mining and so, like, out there in the Black Hills of South Dakota, you got the gold mines, and then they got, like, the silver mines of Montana, and then you got a, the coal mines out there in Wyoming. And so all those companies kind of initially pulled together um, before it became a state school, and they just, like, paid people to learn how to be engineers back in, like, the 1800s because they wanted to mine all the gold and silver and coal out there. Wow. And so then they just started, like, piecing together other engineering departments, and then it became pretty much, like, solely an engineering school. Wow. That's pretty cool. So do you do you now uh, like? Are you happy that your dad made you do that? Um, yeah. I mean, I still have like I still like financial stuff. So there's some aspects that I wish I went there and got like some financial education a little bit more than I have now. But uh, I mean, engineering. I with industrial engineering, you do like a lot of engineering management. It's kind of what it's geared towards. So we still hit up like economics and stuff like that, and love those classes. And yep. I could take those all day. Yep. So, I mean, it's, it worked out well for where I'm at now. Nice. It looks like you're not, I mean, you're not too much older than me. Are you 31? Yeah, 31. You'll be 32 soon. You got like, what, four to five days, six oh, days? Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, like <laughs> Tuesday's 32nd birthday. Happy birthday, man. Yeah, Happy early you. birthday. But, yeah, uh, some days you kind of like, are like, man, I wish I was still like 30 or in my 20s. Yep. I you still look, dude, you still look really young, though. Like I said, I thought, I thought you were like 28. <laughs> I thought I so thought he was older. Old. I thought he was you older just because. So now you're saying I look old. Oh no no, you look the same age. I thought he was older just because I feel like everybody my age is more mature than me. <laughs> you have you have three kids, and uh, it looked like you you've already lived like a really full life. It looked like at one point you were in the military. Yes. How did how did that happen? Yeah. So. Um, I've always had, like, a desire to serve my country. I don't know. Like, no, nobody else in my family has ever been in the military. So, like, ever since I was, like, 16, I had a recruiter come there, and my parents kind of talked me out of it. 
And then uh, when I was in college, uh, one of my best friends, he was in the military. And so, like, we are talking, and I was like, you know, like, I'm just going to live with, like, no regrets. So I'm going to go do it. Mm. So I went and joined the military. Um, so I joined the Army National Guard in South Dakota. I was enlisted for a few years. And then uh, while I was at school, it just kind of made sense to uh, go the officer route. And so went to the ROTC program and then became a commissioned officer and then uh, transferred out to Indiana after we graduated. So, um, yeah, I was in the military for uh, 10 years. Wow. And then uh, this spring I decided to kind of hang up uh, a uniform and kind of just have more freedom. Wow. That's awesome. Did you end up using your VA loan then? Yeah, I used, uh, yeah, I used a VA loan to purchase our first house. And then uh, used like the residual of the VA loan to actually purchase our second house as our family grew, and so that was a great program to allow us to get in our house, both houses for zero percent down. Wow, what do you, what do you mean by residual? So um, the VA loan program, like they give you a certain dollar amount. I think currently it's like four hundred fifty thousand, and so um, like our first house was like a hundred twenty thousand dollar house, and yep. so then we had like three hundred thirty thousand left. And so we're able to use that towards the purchase of our second home. And so now I've got it like all maxed out. Explain that to me. Yeah, this is hilarious because we've had a couple people on who think that yeah. they know about the VA loan, but I feel like you actually know. Yeah, explain <laughs> okay. that to me a little bit more. So you say, you know, you got 400,000. Is that like 400,000 for your lifetime? Is that 400,000 at a time? Like explain that a little bit more in depth. Yeah, um, so every year it kind of varies depending on like the cost of living and they do allowance. So when we purchased it, um, it was about 450000 And what that is, is it's cumulative loans. So like the first one, we have $120,000 loan on our first house. And then uh, we lived there for like a year, year and a half. And then we had another kid and kind of outgrew that house. So then we found a bigger house. And um, we were able to use that residual or that extra 300000 And so um, we have that available for the loan. So... Once we would completely pay off these houses, then we'd have the ability to go get like another VA loan up to that 450 or maybe it's 500,000 or whatever that allowance is at that time. Okay, I got some questions then. So you can have both loans out at the same time. I just wanna clarify that. So you got one loan that let's just say is a rental now, and then now you have a secondary home that you're now as your primary that you're living in? Yes, yeah, so when you purchase it, it has to be your primary residence. Okay. It's so like the first one, it was our primary residence. Yep. We lived in it. And then, like, once we had our next baby, then we got our second primary residence. And you don't have to sell the first one. Okay. And, and then um, whenever you say you can have $450,000 out at a time, let's say that your principal balance is going down year after year, can you then go and, like, uh, go back? So, like, let's say you paid it down for the next 10 years. You're down to you only owe 200000 Can you then pull another, you know, two fifty or My understanding of it is you can only have – two VA loans at the same time. Okay. And I believe it goes off the initial principal balance. Okay. And so um, you have to completely pay off that loan and have no ties to the VA in order to purchase the next one. Okay, cool. How about this question? Since you're, you're not necessarily a, a VA expert, but I feel like you know a lot about it. If, um, if you pay down your VA loan, are you allowed to pull a second lien like a HELOC against a VA loan? Do they allow that? Yeah, I believe so. Oh, dang. I don't think there's any rule against it. When did well, you get your house uh, in Dakota's part of town, like the four or five? 
think he's in two. Are you in two five or four five? What's your zip? Uh, we're in four five. Oh, nice. When so did when did you get that property? We bought that um, November of twenty twenty, I believe. So yeah, you probably have some equity. That area is like popping off. Yeah, it has been popping. <laughs> we, got a, we got a pretty good deal on it. And <laughs> yeah. view. At the time, you're like, I don't know if we're getting a good deal, and then like two years later, you're like, Whoa! <laughs> now even at the time, I was I was surprised it like it lasted on the market that long. Like I think because um, we live. To, on the subdivision just east of La Cabrea. Um, I, th- I think it's called like uh, Eagle Lake. Mm-hmm. And so um, like right now, a lot of the houses are selling in the threes. I think we paid like 295 for our house. It's got like 3,200 square feet. Wow. And then like we're right on the pond and we've got like a gorgeous backyard view. And then when we purchased it, uh, we got like $12,000 seller credit on top wow. of it. Dang. So we were kind of like 285 or something like that. By the time awesome. it was all said and done, so we feel like it was a pretty good price. Wow. But, I mean, it needed a little bit of work. That's awesome. When you uh, made the move from Minnesota over to Fort Wayne, did you were you already uh, connected to your uh, girlfriend slash wife-to-be at the time, or did you meet her after you came to Fort Wayne? Yeah, great question. Um, so my wife and I actually met at the School of Mines. So she's got mm-hmm. a degree in civil engineering. I got a degree in industrial engineering. And she had an emphasis on structural engineering. Wow. So her dream job was to work for like a steel manufacturing company and design buildings and stuff. And so out at the School of Mines, like Nucor is like huge into the School of Mines and they they have like a Nucor week is what they call it. And so they'll send a whole bunch of like recruiters there and just try to convince people to do that. And so um, she wanted to work for Nucor and she got a job offer out here in Indiana. And so that's really kind of what caused us to move to Indiana. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate? It's not like what you see on HGTV. We created a course to show you how to really invest and create a profitable flipping and wholesaling business. We give you marketing strategies like how to pull lists, who we target, and where we find the money. We go over sales, which includes live calls and negotiations, scripts, role-playing, and so much more. Everything that you need to know to flip houses is in this course. And if there's anything that we missed, we will create a video to answer your specific question. This knowledge has made us over a million dollars and we're selling it today for just $997. Click the link below. That's pretty cool too. And then you've got the, uh, do you ever spend any time like with the Fort Wayne kind of has like a center for military here. Was it convenient for you then? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I was part of the National Guard in South Dakota, and then I was also an engineer at, um, it was called Western States Fire Protection. And so, luckily, when we made, decided to make the move, I had a sister company out here called VFP Fire Systems. And so I was ma- able to make Sprinkler dis- fitter type stuff, right? Yeah, except I was more on the design side. Mm. So I designed it and then kind of engineered it and then did, like, the, what they call it stock listing. So make make all the fabrication lists and set it up to the fabricator. And then the install teams actually put it up. Um, and so I was able to get a sister company here. So like all my benefits transferred, just unilateral transfers. So that made it super easy on my side. And then with the military, it's called like an interstate transfer. It's called IST. And so I had to send in all this paperwork. And that was like a six-month process. Um, but they were able to place me into a unit out here. So we were able to make that transfer as well. Did you, did you pick this place or did they kind of pick it for you? Um, so in the military, I actually had to go up to Plymouth, Indiana was kind of my first location. 
So um, in the military, there's different um, military occupational specialties, MOSs. And so um, I was initially on like the engineer side. And then when I became an officer, I was like, you know what, like I do engineering every day, like I'm gonna go do something totally weird. So like I decided to do military police. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I don't know, just a, something totally different and got to kind of live out that way. And so the closest military police to Fort Wayne is up in Plymouth. And so I spent a few years up there and then they transferred me after, I think it was like four years, went down to Indianapolis. I was like the next closest location. So I've been throughout the state. Nice. Did you ever have any like sketchy assignments or did you have to go active? Um, yeah, I've had a couple different assignments. Um, so when I was up with Plymouth, um, we were part of, they call it like surf P and essentially what it is, is like we were the search and rescue team. And so if there was ever, um, it was more around like nuclear disasters and like major disasters, um, even like hurricanes and stuff like that. So we got to do, uh, they call it like extractor courses and whatnot. So we'd go down to like Missouri and we'd go into like do some training where they'd have to like bring you down an elevator shaft and you have to get like a dummy, strap them to a board and then like pull them up the elevator shaft. Oh my gosh. And do all sorts of like ropes courses. And I, it was awesome. And then like you got to see like the jaws of life and just some different tools that a lot of like fire departments train on. And that was a pretty sweet class. So definitely one of like the coolest trainings. Um, helped out a couple like flood disasters when I was in South Dakota, a couple tornadoes and stuff like that, um, which is kind of cool because you're giving back to the community and that's like why yeah. you serve. Like you're there to help people and I mean that's that's what you're there for. Yep. And then during COVID, we got a special mission and we were out in the nursing home. So I got, I was here in Fort Wayne. So luckily I got to stay with like my wife and kids throughout that whole time period. But uh I was kind of help managing over, uh, I think we had 19 facilities. So we had uh, 54 guys and they would staff, help staff the nursing homes. And really they were just there as a support role. So like during the time that was like when you had to do COVID testing like two to three times a week from the state regulations. And then like you had to wear masks and all that. And so our guys were really there just to kind of help out the staff and alleviate that work that the nurses had to do. So that way the nurses could really focus on like providing care for the patients. Yeah. And so we would help out with like all the testing and weekly testing and doing all the labels and filing all the paperwork. Wow. Anytime a guest came in, they'd sit there and check them in and do all the temperature readings. Wow. And so it was a totally different mission that you never would have thought possible, but we got to do that and we did that for like a four month stint. And so, um, it was just kind of fun and diff- different things that you never got to do uh, on the civilian side. Yep, that's awesome. What do you think are uh, characteristics of like an engineer? Because when I was in sales, like engineers always, I felt to me like they thought differently. So what do you think like are characteristics of those, of like, you know, you've probably seen a lot of engineers. Do you think that they think differently or? Um, yeah, I mean, I think engineers, most of them are, they have some sort of nerdiness to them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like, you always know, kind of like stereotype engineers. Yeah. So I mean, you've got like the computer engineers. I mean, they're geeks and I mean, they play Dungeons and Dragons till like three o'clock in the morning. Um, and then like most of the time, most engineers are pretty good with math. Yeah. Um, typically you don't make it through engineering school if you're not good at it. Cause we have to take like calculus three and differential equations and just tons of math classes. Um, so I mean, 
usually they'll have some sort of nerdiness or quirks to them and more introverts than extroverts. Yeah. But you do have the exception of some people are just really outgoing. Right. Which one, which uh, kind of engineer do you think you are then? And like, uh, cause I feel like it's interesting. Engineers and real estate investors almost seem like opposites. So like, are you feel like you're an outlier of the engineer? Like you feel like it's just like still fits in with it. Um, yeah, it's a good question. So I feel like there's sometimes that you have to like go into what's you don't feel comfortable with. Yeah. And so I've definitely had to like play into that on some of the real estate investing. But like as far as like my quirk with like math, that fits perfectly with real estate investing. Like on the commercial side, it's all about like the numbers. And so yeah. that's what kind of drove me towards that was it's just numbers based. And so there's no emotion to it. Mm hmm. And so I figured like if I could get away from like the emotion of it, that was one checklist or one thing that relieved me of being able to do what kind of felt normal for me. Yeah, it's yeah, kind of funny. It's like realtor is like probably the most emotional because you're managing everybody's emotions in the yeah. transaction. And then we we're kind of like, man, being a realtor is not that much fun. Being a real estate investor is better. And then you're kind of like, you know what? Being a real estate investor is still like, pretty emotional. I'd rather be a commercial real estate yeah. investor. Well, that's <laughs> like what one that, more step yeah, that, away. That's actually what I want to ask you about actually is, uh, you know, you talk about it's not emotional, but it's all a math equation. But at the end of the day, it still, for some reason, still has some emotion attached to it. So how have you been able to detach your emotions from it? Is it just literally, I know the math and I calculate it, right? Because like, most engineers, even if they know the math, they know what makes sense. It's still a fear-based thing that you feel, even though you're like, I ran this a million times, I know what's right, I know it's accurate, I'm still scared. So how do you separate that? Or how did you, did you have fear in the beginning? Or talk yeah, to us no, about that's, it. That's an awesome question. Um, yeah, I mean, there is some aspect of that where you have some emotion. Um, I mean, for the most part, like, I'd run my calculations, I'd be like, no, that's a pretty good return. And then, um, sometimes like you start thinking like, man, that's a huge number. Like, how am I gonna comprehend it? And so what I typically do is I type it all up cause I'm like, it takes nothing to type it up. Like you can get it all prepared. And then I'll bring up the email, start typing out the email. Cause I'm like, hey, there's no emotion to an email. Like I didn't hit send. And then what I'll do is I'll kind of take like a 10 minute breather on the first couple of them. And then um, like kind of like hype yourself up. And then all of a sudden like, I'll just go there and just hit enter. <laughs> And that's and how I run away. Yeah, and then they oh, run away. Man. And I'm like, like I did. <laughs> and that was how I kind of did the first couple of them. And then it comes back and it says, like, we're sorry, the, uh, the email <laughs> yeah. wizard sent it to the wrong address or whatever. You like, you oh, mistyped yeah. one letter or like something. <laughs> yeah, so the first one, no, it came back and they're like, um, they're like, yeah, they'll just bump it up $25,000 and do it. I'm like, oh, okay, like, we got a deal here then. Wow. And so, uh, and then like you just go through the next emotional thing. So it's just kind of like, you just take those baby step commitments yep. and that's really how you get started. Like the first one's like you analyze it and the next one's you type up the offer and there's no commitment to type up an offer. I mean, you just save it on your computer. Yep. Yeah, I think the more logical you are too, like, you know, if we're talking about that archetype, uh, since Dakota brought up the the engineer stereotype. It's like, however you're- like, Since Dakota brought that <laughs> up. <laughs> however you internally, process information is like the way that you have to justify it. So I think when it comes to like the engineer archetype, it's like, hey, it has to make objective sense to them and they kind of have to talk to themselves enough. And so they're just having these internal conversations with themselves of like, okay, 
can I make this objectively make sense without emotion in the most logical way possible? Because if it makes logical sense to me, then I'll commit to it. So I, th I think that's because of the way that we're raised and because of the, the way that society is, a lot of times the engineer archetype ends up being like, okay, they told me to go to school and get a job. Now I have to stay at that job because that's what makes sense for me and my family. But then at some point you start to figure out that like logically it's a bigger risk not to buy real estate to hold on to because of the all of the benefits. As soon as you start to learn more about real estate, it's like, man, I think that real estate makes a lot of sense and we should be doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, one thing uh, it's interesting too, though, is um, you talk a lot about going to the next step, and that's the same same thing that we do in sales. So it's funny that, like, in my opinion, like sales and engineer is almost opposites, but there's a lot of similarities too because you know, in sales, you have to know your numbers, you have to know math pretty dang well. Not freaking to the same level that you guys are, not even close. Like we're at algebra level, you guys are at a whole nother <laughs> level. But like, you have to know some sort of math. But at the same time, like it's the same process no matter what. So that's something very good for people to hear is that, you know, you still, even though you're a very logical person, you still have emotion on it. And all you do is find yourself how to get to the next step. And that's the main thing that people have to remember is go to the next step. Don't try to get a deal for a couple million dollars and try to buy a million dollar property. Get to the next step of doing that and finding out what that is. Same thing in the sales process. Our goal is not to close the deal on the first conversation. It's to get them to the next step. So I think that's like very valuable information. On your first one, let's talk about your very first deal. Or, okay. or I was going to say, even when you, so you came to Fort Wayne, you had no deals yet, right? Yeah. Okay, so take us from you having no deals. Were you and your wife working? Yeah, so my wife and I both had engineering jobs at the time. Why did you get into real estate? Like, <laughs> what was the inspiration? And then what did your first deal look like? Are you letting deals fall through the cracks because you don't have good systems in place? We've been there before and we've tried several different CRMs and Ari Simply has been the best. Ari Simply tracks your KPIs, does automatic follow-ups for you, and even records your incoming phone calls. The system is simple to use and has more features than we even know what to do with. If you're looking for a great CRM, try Ari Simply today. We put the link in the description. Check it out now. Yeah, so really what inspired me to get into real estate is as a kid, like my mom was fascinated with HGTV. So like she'd watch it all the time. And I always kind of like enjoyed that. And uh, throughout college, um, like I pitched to my parents. I was like, hey, like we could buy this house because like you get kicked out of the, there's only so many dorms. So like your sophomore, or end of sophomore year, junior year, you get kicked out of the dorms and you have to go find your own house. And so I was like, like everybody, all my friends are getting kicked out. I'm like, we should all live together. I'm like, hey, if we buy this house, like I could live rent free. All my buddies will pay for the rent. And yep. I didn't know it was like house hacking is kind of what the term is, but yep. that's kind of what we did. And so uh, talked to my parents and they were all on board for it. And so we purchased a house, kind of remodeled it, rented it out. Um, and so that, that was kind of like my first little taste of it is not having a rent payment during mm. college. Wow. And so that was great because, like, I had the beer money and, <laughs> and like, I joined the military, so I paid for school, and then I worked a part-time job at Lowe's. And so um, during college, I went and bought a Porsche. Wow. Um, so I bought a Porsche 911. That was kind of my college car a little bit. And then That's I had awesome. And then I there, too. What, was it, like, ten, a 10-year-old Porsche, or was it, like, brand yeah, new so Porsche? so I went to college. It was 2013. It was 
think seven years old. It was 2006. Wow. wow. 9-11, six speed. Like, Ballin'. probably the coolest, <laughs> <laughs> coolest car I've ever owned. Yep. And it was Did just, you get rid of it? Yeah, I sold it to buy my first investment property. Oh, that was worth There's it. There's some days I still kick myself, like, why'd you ever do yeah, that? Yeah, I was saying, we're going to get into that. <laughs> we're going to get into why the heck you did that. Yeah, no, it was... I always had, like, a goal or a dream, like, when I was a kid, like, when I was 16, I'm like, I just want, like, a Ferrari or a Porsche, like, yeah. one of those days. And mm -hmm. so, like, I set a goal, like, I want it by 25. That's awesome. And so I ended up getting that at 23, and it was kind of, um, I was sitting in class, and I was surfing eBay Motors, and this one came up. And so, kind of like how many miles? States, uh, it had uh, twenty five thousand miles. Holy oh crap! You it probably went down in value and then up in value. It's probably one of those yeah, that's I like it in thirteen. So like it kind of like that was the bottom of it. Because mm -hmm. the all of the I was looking at the exotic car hacks guy, and he was saying that like uh, the newer Porsches they went to paddle shifters, and then people missed that manual transmission feel. And then Porsche started to listen to their customers and started building the manual transmissions again. But for a minute, when they weren't coming out with like a stick shift, those cars went back up in value again. Yeah, so exotic cars kind of have like a totally different depreciation curve. Yeah. And I'm sure Tony, or uh, you've looked into that a little bit. Uh, Tony's looked into it more than I have, actually. But okay. yeah, we, he's like looking up all the cars. That's how he knows that because he looked into it because... I mean, that's something that we might do later is like, okay, let's figure out this luxury exotic stuff and make sure it makes sense. Cause like I'm looking at stuff like, you know, I don't know. Just, yeah. just for social currency, just because it's what people look at and they see it as success. You know, like if you want to help people get to the next level and they look at you and they see my 170,000 mile Hyundai Sonata, they're like, that doesn't really look like success to me. Like I need some, I need something that would validate you, you know? when they look at me as a mentor. So if I had a Porsche 911 six speed, even if it was a 2013 with 25,000 miles on it, people are gonna be like, wow, Tony's got a Porsche. Yeah, I mean, there's some of that factor, but there's some of the factor like, I'm a it. car guy, like, yeah. like I've got a truck and I've, like I like the luxuries and stuff like that. Yeah. And so like for me, it's like sitting behind the steering wheel and it's like the smiles per mile. Yeah. Like. When I'm sitting there, I'm just like, got the biggest oh, grin. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you feel like that six-year-old that's like, oh, that's the coolest car ever. And like getting behind the driver's seat, like that's all I cared about. I didn't care about the people like looking at you and right. staring at you. I mean, it's all about like how many smiles you have driving it. Yep. And living out in the Black Hills, like we had the curvy roads, like it was a match made it's in fun. heaven. Yeah. I mean, that's you just awesome. go out there, you roll the windows down and you just get to listen to the engine. Yep. I love it. Yeah, we... uh I, or I guess I had a luxury car and it was the same thing. I was just like, man, like I, nobody, people made fun of me for that car. I'm like, I don't care, dude. I love this car. Cause it's the Genesis is the G80 sport. And it's like a luxury, but it's sporty. So yeah. it's just like, man, like I loved it. And I didn't give a crap, dude. It wasn't for anybody else or anything like that. I just love that car. So yeah, I definitely want to find something like that. I've not found one that I like that much that's expensive. Like I drove a um, McLaren, a friend of mine's and I was like, eh, too low to the ground. It's too like, like it's just you uh, feel every bump yeah i didn't like it so i was like eh this isn't my car so i like I, while it's really cool and probably would give you a lot of social currency it's not it's not for me so yeah yeah that's crazy though all right so keep going about you got the 911 and then keep going Coll into your college house so yeah. that was the first inspiration but then you had to have gotten into some sort of real estate deal when you moved to fort wayne right yeah so um yeah sorry for that little tangent there oh, <laughs> that was fun so uh 
what happened is I was working at v, or, uh, Western States Fire Protection, and one of my coworkers, his father-in-law was in the commercial real estate. And so we were just kind of like BS talking, like office mates were. And like I came to the conclusion, uh, we were kind of talking, and that he's like, you look at all the people that like made it, and like typically most of them, like you can't scale like 10,000 houses. Yeah. He's like, that's hard to do. Yeah. But like you can do that in commercial real estate. He's like, you can have a $100 million portfolio of commercial real estate, no problem. Like yep. you have people that have billions. Yep. And so um, he was talking about his father-in-law, and his father-in-law like took 20 years to make like a million dollars in single family houses. And then all of a sudden, like he started doing like land development and commercial real estate. And then he made like 10 million in 10 years. Wow. And so I was like, you know, like maybe there's some, something to that train of thought. And so at that point I just kind of like wanted to get into commercial real estate because that's kind of what the big dogs did. Yep. And mm -hmm. so when we moved out here, um, there's a lot more opportunity because this was the biggest city I've ever lived in. Mm -hmm. Like the city I grew up in was 700 people. 700,000 or 700 <laughs> people? <laughs> he, set, he set it up like he was going to say 700,000. Yeah, no, 700, like 700, 700 people. 700 people. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, my graduating class in high school was 28 people. Wow. Like, I knew everybody in the school. Wow. And, uh, like, when I went to college, that was a ton of, like, 75,000. So, like, that was a big city. And then moving out to here, like, this is Metropolis. Oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. And then, like, you don't even talk about Chicago. <laughs> Like, that's like, I'll try to avoid that at all costs. Yeah, we get made fun of by people over in Vegas for, like, this is still a small city. We're like, yeah, we're in the second biggest city in Indiana. It's still, like, nothing. Yeah. Like, this is nothing. Yeah, I thought Indianapolis was just massive. Yeah. So you moved here, and then what did your first deal look like in commercial real estate? Yeah, so... Well, did you start off in commercial, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, okay. And so when we moved here, um, I knew I wanted to do commercial real estate. So within like two weeks of us coming out here, I reached out to a couple brokers, sat down, and I just kind of created like a criteria list of what I was looking at. And then I went and joined the Fort Wayne Rio group that met on Saturdays, and that's how I met you, Tony. Yeah. And so that went to that meeting in like the first two weeks, um, sat with a bunch of brokers, and then one of the brokers came back and said, hey, here's a deal that's been – on the market, um, it was listed at 995000 And he's like, the sellers are like in their late 80s and they're going to sell it. And so he's like, just put an offer in and what makes sense to you. So I think we did the math. I think we made an offer at like a 10.5 cap. And then there was like some market rents, like everything was modified gross. And the market's obviously appreciated since 2010 when they put a lot of the leases in place. And so we had some upside there. And so we put an offer in at 800000 Wow. And then um, we ultimately settled at 850. Wow. And so that was our very first commercial deal. It was a 16 unit multi tenant building. It was actually two buildings. Industrial? Uh, yeah, it was industrial flex. So, like the front, you'd have like three, four offices, maybe a conference room, a bathroom. And then, like the back, 70% would be warehouse space wow. that they could just store stuff. And then there was like some outside storage lots that they had. Was it fully occupied? Um, I think there was one vacancy, but for the most part, fully occupied. That's amazing. All right, so talk to us about what what you saw in that deal and then what you did after you bought it then. Yeah, so really what we liked about the deal is we had, I think it was 12 tenants. Some of them had like double spaces. And so I was like doing the math and I'm like, we could lose like 30% of the tenants and still make this work. Mm -hmm. 
And so there's like it kind of came over to some of the objections, like, okay, like if you lose a tenant, what happens? Like you still gonna make your debt payment. And so I was able to overcome a lot of those objections. And then there's enough cash flow, like, okay, like if a furnace goes out and I was like, well, we could like replace a furnace with like one month's rent. Yep. And so it just kind of helped alleviate a lot of the objections. And that's kind of what forced us into that. And then the biggest over thing that we had to overcome was like coming up with a down payment. Yep. Because on $850,000, it's a $175,000 down payment. How did you finance that by the way? Just um, bank? Yes, we did 75% bank financing. Okay. So it talks with a lot of different banks. And that was like the biggest growth because we had two jobs. Like we've had two engineering jobs. We had great salaries and stuff. But like I didn't have a stockpile of cash when I mean, we just started our jobs yeah. that year. And so um, all I had was the Porsche. Yeah. So that's kind of what So I you did. sold the Porsche for 175 grand and uh, you got the down payment. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> no, I sold that, and then uh, so he doesn't I want to talk. He didn't want to say the number. He's like, I sold it for not enough. How much did you sell the Porsche for? Yeah, so I ended up selling it for like thirty six thousand. Nice. And so I bought it for, I think it was like thirty five, thirty six. Yeah. So I pretty much sold it for exactly what I paid that's for awesome. it. And then like now it's like worth fifty just yeah. because everything's appreciated. Yeah, for sure. And so it's just like, man, I could have still had it. Yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, I mean, I got to drive it for three, four years and sold it for the exact same dollar amount. So I yeah. can't be mad about that. Yeah. How'd you get the other like 140 then? Yeah. So um, what ended up happening is talked to a couple banks and then they said like best way to do that is just bring on like a money partner. Mm-hmm. And so I talked to a couple like banks, recommend me a couple doctors and I pitched the idea to a couple doctors and because of my first deal, they kind of turned me down on it. Yep. And so um, ended up talking with my dad over it because I was trying to like figure that out. He's like, well, I'll be your partner. Like that looks like a pretty solid deal. Nice. So got to give my dad a lot of credit because like he kind of, he taught me a lot of like knowledge that I never really put together until starting to do this. So like we grew up on the farm. So I got to learn like what depreciation schedules were. And like I sat in like his tax meetings as a kid because meant we got to go out for lunch afterwards. Yeah. And so I just like gained all this knowledge and he was really pivotal or pivotable in my life. Yep. And uh, so he ended up being my partner on that first deal. And so we actually ended up getting, because um, he's a farmer, he has a lot of equipment, so we just took out a loan on the equipment. Okay. And so we basically got a personal loan for that, and that was our down payment. That's awesome. Do you still own that property today? No. So uh, in 2020, we actually sold and exited, and then we did 1031 into uh, five properties down in Texas. Wow, what'd you end up selling it for? Uh, we sold it for 1.6 million. Wow, so what was your uh, net after everything? Not taxes, obviously. Um, well, you no taxes. No, yeah, it was a 1031 exchange, so we didn't have to pay any yeah. taxes. Uh, so we walked away from the closing table with a check for $907,000. Dang, and how much work? Like if you had to like talk about the work involved and everything, time and all that stuff, like how much do you think you put into it? Um. <laughs> You know, it's, it's hard to say. So, like, I'm sure you guys have realized, like, when it rains, it pours. Yes. And so um, it always seemed notoriously, like, there'd be months where there'd be, like, not a single phone call. Like, all the rent just came in because so it comes in via ACH. Yep. It'd be the, the world's best investment. And then all of a sudden, like, you'll have, like, a month and a half period where you'll have a tenant that moves out. And then the next door neighbor's water heater goes out. And yep. then the furnace goes out the next week. 
then you just have all these expenses and then you're trying to show the space. Um, so ultimately, probably like if you had to put it on an average, um, you probably work in like maybe 30 hours a month or so. Yep. That's amazing. And it's, how long did you hold it for? Uh, we held that for since 2017 to 21. So just shy of four years. Wow. That's amazing, dude. Congratulations on that. Almost a million dollars on your first deal. Yeah, it was awesome. No, that wasn't all mine. So I mean, right. obviously I had a partner yes. in there. So he how, got his cut. What was that split? Uh, 50-50. Okay. So you went 50-50 just because you're like, hey, so you had what, 30000 in the deal? Yeah, we each put in um, $25,000. Okay. And then we got an equipment loan for the other down payment, and that gives a little bit of working capital. That's awesome. So essentially, you were all in the deal for 25000 and then your dad covered the rest of the down payment. Um, Well, we got a loan for ourselves, so we just had right. the business pay for that loan directly. So we each contributed twenty five grand. Yep. And then we just paid off. Um, but all the equipment was his? Yeah, all the equipment. So he okay. put up the collateral for the loan. Yep. But then the business itself paid the loan off. That's awesome, man. Yeah. And then so he got all, whenever it closed, he got all of his money back. You guys got a 50-50 split or you just put it all in the next deal that where you guys are now partial 50-50 owners in the next one. Yep. Nice. Yep. So, yep, still 50% owner and and we've got uh, five properties down in Texas, out kind of in the Midland, Texas area. Wow. And then we've got one property in Muncie and then we're picking up another property in Muncie here. That's awesome. Have, did you have any disagreements at all with your dad during this whole entire process? Um, yeah, I mean, we've always had like, so there's, it's more like uh, different stages in life. So he's uh, kind of in his mid to late fifties. And so he's got 30 some years on me. And so it's just kind of like that difference of, I'm just kind of looking to like get into my prime earning time. And he's looking to like kind of be more mm. save, like pay sure. down debts, get all that stuff paid mm -hmm. off where I'm like, I don't care like how much <laughs> debt we have. I've got right. 30 years to pay it off yep. before I'm even close to retirement. Yep. So, I mean, you have a, a couple of those agree or conversations more yes. so, but I don't think we ever really had any disagreement that we couldn't resolve. That's awesome. So um, luckily my father and I, I think almost identically. So we're kind of like two peas in a pod. That's awesome. So uh, for people who don't know what a 1031 exchange is, they bought the property for 850000 Maybe they put some money into capital expenditures and then they started uh, depreciating or started it on a depreciation schedule. So lost some of the eight hundred and fifty, And then when they sold the property for 1.6, they would have had to have paid taxes on the purchase price plus the capital expenditures minus the depreciation schedule. And they would have this big chunk of money that they would have had to have paid taxes on. But instead, they usually you partner with the government, right? So you kind of like take the money, send it with a lawyer into an account, then, yeah, an then identify identify three potential properties to move the money over into. Yeah, so um, yeah, with the 1031 rules, you can identify, so you have a 45 day window to identify the properties. You can identify three properties, and if you go more than three, you have to close on 90% of them. So when we moved to tax, or we, when we did our deal in Texas, I actually locked those up before we sold the property. So we had it under contract to sell. And then during that under contract period, we started identifying our properties. And then once it actually closed and we had the money at the intermediary, then, um, and we were all done with our due diligence, then I identified it because it was still within that 45 day window. That way I didn't like shoot it and then decide not to close on them. Yeah. 
And so we identified five properties, and then the rule is if you didn't identify more than three, you have to close on 90% of them, which wow. pretty much means all of them. Yep. So then they move the money over into the next property, but the next property, even if let's say it was a $5,000 purchase price, that you know profit is going to take down the tax basis of the next property. So if they were then to sell the next property, they're going to have to pay more uh, taxes. They're kind of just deferring the taxes until later. However, you can defer the taxes over and over and over and over and over again if you're committed to being uh, a real estate investor for your entire life, you can die and then not have to pay those taxes ever. Pass it on to your your kin, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, it's it, called a stepped-up basis. And it does have to be a equal to or greater than the one that you had before. Is that correct? Yeah, so typically what they want to see is the government wants to see you going into a bigger property that takes on more debt. Yep. So um, Yeah, you can't comes, go smaller. Yeah, yeah, there's some tax implications if you go smaller. Oh, so you can go smaller. You just might have to pay more taxes. I believe so. Yeah. Okay. I did not know that. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff that, that's kind of like an ask your accountant thing. Yep. Mm -hmm. I was say I did not know that. I thought that you had to go bigger, but that might just be to defer all the taxes. Yep. Like you said, you I've, might be I've heard of folks taking it and being like, okay, I want to defer 400000 but I want to take the other 400000 buy this vacation property, but I need to receive that as income, and then they end up paying a bunch of taxes on the money that they received as income. Mm. Yep. Yeah, you still get to defer the four hundred, and then you just have to pay tax on the rest of it. Okay. That's awesome. It just makes things really complicated. <laughs> yeah, <it laughs> just really go does. bigger. <laughs> just go bigger. Yeah, you put yourself a good accountant. <laughs> or so, just go bigger. Yeah. Yeah. So talk a little bit about uh, vacancy and tenant time because one of the things that we worry about getting into commercial real estate is like, what if uh, I can't find a tenant for a year? Um, and then talk about how to improve the value of commercial property. Yeah, yeah, two great questions. Um, yeah, the vacancy is definitely a concern. So um, like in the single family vacancies, especially right now, has been like super short, like two days, a month, <laughs> uh, two days. <laughs> yeah, I think the fastest vacancy we ever filled up was like a month and a half. Wow. And the longest is like, probably a year and a half. Holy smokes. Is that scary? Um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely some scariness to it. Um, but I mean, luckily, like when we had 16 units, like one out of 16, I was like, okay, as with our vacancy yeah, still doing all right. cost, like at the time when we purchased it, I mean, we figured it's some vacancy and I figured you'd probably have one or two units. What percentage do you figure in? Um, so it can vary depending on what we're looking at. Like if we're looking at like that, that 16 unit, what did you figure in math wise? Um, <coughs> I'm trying to remember back my numbers from five years ago, but I want to say we figured in like one vacant unit for the entire year. So maybe like 5%, 7, 7%. I think it came out, um, yeah, probably in that like 7%. Mm -hmm. Or I'm, Maybe that's not the right math. <laughs> yeah, it better be like one divided by 16. That's what I did. It, you ended up with 169 somehow on accident. Oh, yeah, 6.25. Oh. 6. I'll say I, that's what I try to do. Yeah, so 6.25%. You know, I might have doubled it So because we had a couple double units. I might have taken our biggest tenant. Okay. Because I was like ultra conservative mm -hmm. at the time. So you did one point. So I might oh, have yeah, like yeah. That's good, though, dude. I, I love hearing that because like – 
whenever people first get into real estate, there's a lot of fear there. There's a lot of like, I'm really nervous. Well, it's my some first people deal. are naively optimistic and they're like, we're not going to have any vacancies. And then they're like, I don't know why this isn't working. I'm not making any uh, money. <laughs> see, I feel like most people are more scared to jump in. But if you're so conservative, they like, dude, there is no way that this is going to happen. Like you just plan for the absolute worst and hope for the best. But then, like you said, double the vacancies, double it. And then you're like, the number still makes sense. All right, I guess I'm freaking doing this because like there's no reason that this doesn't make sense because you're buying it at such a good discount. That's what I always recommend people do on their first deal is exactly what you said. Just be so conservative that you're going to be fine. Yeah, I mean, the market will kind of dictate a little bit for you. Yep. Um, and now like with some of like our single tenant ones, like vacancy's not as much of a concern. So like on the triple net single tenant buildings, typically they don't take into vacancy accounts very much. Hmm. Um, at least when they value it. Um, I mean, you still kind of do it with your number wise, but yeah. like if they've got like a seven year lease, like, I mean, that's, that's a long term. Yep. And so sometimes what I'll do is I'll take like a 10 year period for vacancy. So I kind of figure out like, okay, realistically, like how long is my vacancy period in a 10 year period? And I kind of make that my vacancy percentage. Gotcha. So then when it comes to raising the value of commercial property, how do you do it? How did you get the value to go from 850 purchase price to 1.6 million? Because a lot of viewers are not going to understand how it's just instantly worth more somehow. Yeah. So um, the cool thing about commercial is it's really numbers driven. So people buy commercial properties typically on a cap rate basis. I mean, it's an investment property. You're not buying it to live in. You're not buying it for anything other purposes. And typically investing or that's where your business is going to be explain explain a cap rate too for people who don't know yeah so um what a cap rate is is it's essentially the return on investment if you purchased it 100 percent in cash so it excludes any sort of debt financing that you'd put in there because everybody gets different financing terms you might get five percent you might get three percent i might have eight percent um and then who knows, maybe get like a 20 year amortization or 25 and banks are all over the place. Yep. And so what the cap rate does, is it just kind of puts it on an even playing field. So say you buy a million dollar property and it makes a net income of a hundred thousand. And um, just to kind of explain to your viewers what that net income would be is like, it might have $150,000 of gross rents and then you'd have your, your property taxes and your insurance and your maintenance and some vacancy. And then you net out like a hundred thousand dollars after all those expenses already taken into account. Yep. And so the hundred thousand divided by 1 million is 10%. Yep. Or you can go the other way, right? Divided by 0.1 and then that would give you the million. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So another method, like if you're doing an eight cap, um, so you take the hundred thousand divided by 0 0.08, then that, that give you the value. So I think that's 1.2. 100,000 divided by 0 0.08, 1.25. Yep. So that's basically how you get your cap rate. And then what is the other way that you said? Uh, how you reverse the cap rate. Yeah, find so you the go 100,000 and then you divide it by your purchase price. And then that's going to tell you the cap rate. So let's just say you bought it for 1.5. Then that, nope, that doesn't work. That'd be a 6. Oh, yeah, that does. 6.7. Yeah, 6.7. Yep, 6.7%. Yep, because so that I just does happened work. to pick a number that came up with a bunch of satanic numbers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. Thanks, Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> and then let's say you bought it for 800000 Then the cap rate's going to be higher. So yep, you're like 12 and a half. Yep. So mm -hmm. that's the way that an easy way to figure out the cap rate. But 
And right. yeah, so then you take the cap rate, and then what you can do is so commercial properties are valued off of cap rates, and then the way you can grow the value is is um, like the last four or five years. Luckily, the market has had decreasing cap rates. So like three four years ago, ten cap was pretty normal, like um, for some of these like smaller shops. And then now, like an eight cap is probably normal. Yep. So we had some appreciation given that. We were also able to raise some rents on all that, so bringing up more towards market rents. So, I mean, rents have been appreciating over the last five years. And then just kind of filling in some vacancies. So, I mean, the more money you have coming in for an investment property means the more valuable it's worth. Yep. And so um, doing those three, and then along with principal pay down on the loan, because um, I think we were paying like four grand a month in principal pay down. Nice. So, I mean, that's 48000 a year. So, I mean, mm-hmm. after four years, I mean, that's close to $200,000 that you have in principal pay down. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then talk about the, uh, your capital expenditures too, and how that helps everything out. Cause I remember you talk about the light bulbs. So let's talk about the light bulb scenario. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's just different ways to like, so you can either increase your income or you can decrease your expenses as the two methods mm-hmm. to increase your NOI or that net income. And so, uh, we've got like an office building up in South Bend. And so, it's got the old incandescent light bulbs and like electricity costs keep going up every year. So we were like, okay, so if you could switch that over to LEDs, like the cost savings, um, like excluding the light bulb and all that, like you're gonna use a whole lot less energy by going to the LEDs. Yep. Especially when you got like a 30,000 square foot office building. I mean, you've got like a couple hundred light fixtures. Yeah. And so even just saving like five, six bucks a piece or whatever electricity costs a year. I mean, that's some substantial dollars. Yeah. So let's do the math real quick so for I everybody. I th- think we figured it out. I think it was like a, a year and a half, two year period is what it, our payback was to pay back the light bulb cost. Yep. And then, so, uh, so have, like how many light bulbs and how much savings? Um, you know, the hard part is trying to figure out like how much savings we've had. Cause like this year, especially with like the Ukraine war and all yeah. that, like electricity going prices up. just skyrocketed. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So you like did it, and you're like, oh, it's a good thing we don't have those anymore because it's yeah. insane. Let's just say you save freaking three dollars per light bulb. How many light bulbs do you think there are? Four hundred. Yeah, like three, four hundred. Okay, so let's just say four hundred. So that's twelve. Twelve hundred a year. Times twelve. That's fourteen. And then we'll divide that by a cap rate of point zero eight, which we're at now. So that just added a hundred and eighty thousand dollars worth of value because you decreased your expenses just for all the viewers out there. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely one method of doing it. Yep. I'll say that when I heard you say that, I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Well, and the reason Same thing is like, uh, we went there and we put in like smart thermostats. Yep. So it used to be like the old thermostat where you just set it on the wall and it sits mm-hmm. at 72 degrees 24 seven. And then, uh, we put in the smart thermostats. So from like 6am to 6pm during working hours, it's set at like, 67 to 72 and they the tenant can adjust it yep but then like when they leave for the day like it bumps down to like 60 degrees or during the summer it jumps up to 75 and just kind of shuts off the system that's awesome until the next morning and we don't know the cost savings on that yet just because again prices have just been erratical yep but um like the usage has gone down yep that's awesome and so i mean that should ultimately be cost savings yep and the the magic too on the accounting side I mean, the crappy thing a lot of times if you're going to mark things as a capital expenditure on the accounting side is that you can't take it immediately as like a maintenance cost or like as an expense. But 
The cool thing about making it a capital expenditure is then on the books, you can show that like, hey, uh, this actually doesn't affect the net operating income, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, because you have your, uh, in the accounting line, you'll have like your net operating income and then typically your capital expenditure items are below that and then your financing items are below that and then that comes out to like, um, I guess they call it net operating income and then it's net income. Yep. So, so if you, you two terms in there. if you replace the roof, if you put in uh, more efficient windows, if you put uh, tents on the windows like we're going to do here at the office, if you replace light bulbs, if you uh, replace the thermostats, that doesn't have to go down as an expense and it doesn't take away from your net operating income. So then you can show that like, hey, actually, we made the property more efficient and all that money that we spent, just ignore that. And uh, by the way, this property is worth significantly more now because of the amount of money that it's producing on an annual basis. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. And then there's sometimes, I mean, if you're going to hold it for a long term, you just make an expense and mm -hmm. take the light bulbs. It's just kind of a maintenance item that you did, but you yep. just went to a better light bulb. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's awesome. Um, how do you how do you find your deals? So you said that you, you mostly use relationships, you have brokers, that sort of thing. Yeah, so um, so to date, pretty much all the deals have come from either brokers by just kind of talking with brokers that we've done previous deals with or looking on uh, like LoopNet, Crexy, um, those. The biggest one I've found, or most of them I've found through Crexy. Wow, that's awesome. So let's talk more about how you're financing them now then because I think that's where most people struggle is financing it seems like everybody's always like man i don't know how to get this money and like a like when you're in uh commercial the numbers are a lot bigger i mean we're talking to people about hundred thousand dollar homes and they're worried about finding twenty five thousand you're worried about finding a couple hundred thousand so how are you financing and getting your money now yeah so um for the most part i mean we've pretty much built our entire portfolio off of traditional bank financing and then um so like we're doing a new construction build down in Texas and all our other properties, like we'll go get bank financing for 75%, uh, sometimes 80% if the bank lets us. And then we've either brought cash for the 20% down or sometimes we'll bring on investors for a portion of that. Um, and then we've had other times where we'll have private money lenders that will borrow us money and do the down payment. So kind of combination of those three is really been what we've filled for the down payments. So your own cash, private money, and then what was the other one? Uh, bringing on investors. Oh, investors, like giving them a cut of the, the deal. Yeah, so uh, my father and I are doing a new construction build down in Texas. And so uh, we're gonna give him a cut of the deal. Nice. Um, so he'll get like a 19% stake, so it keeps below wow. the 20% uh, stake that requires banks to submit his personal information. Yep. And so he doesn't have to provide a personal guarantee. Okay. But then he's going to bring um, like 40% of the down payment. And then my father and I are going to bring the remaining uh, 60%. That's awesome. Uh, we're going to get some ending questions here. You have three kids. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> what yep. advice do you have for parents out there? Um, don't make the kids your excuse. Mm. So I think that's kind of what... Uh, when we had our first kid, like everybody's like, oh, you can't go out and do anything anymore. And so it was kind of a challenge to us of like, we're not gonna change our lifestyle around the kids. Now, I mean, there's some give and take, 
But like for the most part, like even with our firstborn, like we'd bring him and go boating with him. He just sat in a car seat while we went boating. That's awesome. With friends, or we'd go to like a campfire, or bonfire, and we'd go bring him out there, and he'd sit out there, and then usually we'd try to ask him and see if we could just like put him up in their room or bring a pack and play. And so we just kind of did that. And with each kid, like there's some growing pains with it now having three. But for the most part, like we've tried to do that of they just kind of go with you and they're part of your lifestyle now. And then um, like not making them the excuse of to expand your dream. Like my dream was real estate and I wanted to do that. Like it's easy enough to be like, oh man, I just worked a 40 hour week job. Like got kids at home. Like I shouldn't be able to put another 20 hours in. Yep. But my wife and I made the determination that it was a big deal. So like it was just when I got done with my job, I drove over to the site, did my stuff off the commercial properties that I needed to, came home with the kids. Or if it was a Saturday, I needed to go do some work on the Saturday morning, get up, go do work, come home with the kids. Yep. So, I mean, you just kind of add them to that lifestyle. I mean, it's easy enough to make excuses, but sometimes you just got to push through it and make no excuse. Yeah, I love that. I think there's two reasons of why that's really important. One is that like when you get later in life, let's say they become 18, like you could kind of like resent that in a way, like resent them or have a little bit like, hey, you're kind of the reason I set it all aside for you. Or like, if they're not successful, then you're like, I gave up my life for you or whatever. And you can kind of get a little bit resentful if that were to happen, if you gave up your dreams, if you gave up everything for them. <coughs> but then also like you will be a better example for your kids with you living your dreams and making sure that they're a part of it. And now they get to see that, hey, this is possible for you to do this as well. So those are just, yeah, I think that's really, really good advice. Yeah, and I, I lucked out. I mean, like I said, my father was very influential in my life. So like being a farmer, he wasn't tied to a, a nine to five job. So I never knew growing up what that nine to five life was. Yep. And so like, I just thought it was normal. like. Dad had to go out in the field, so I'd just hop in the tractor with him, or he had to go to town to go pick up seed corn or whatever it was. And he just hop in there and just kind of talk about life and whatever. And uh, I just kind of wanted to be able to provide my kids that too. So it was just kind of like, okay, like I know that's the lifestyle I want to provide my kids, so like let's go get it. Yep, that's awesome. Uh, what is your why? Um. I think kind of providing my kids the same lifestyle that I grew up with. And um, like it might be different financial lifestyles, but it's being able to be at every game for your kid and being able to just chat with them to see how their day is and letting them come to work with you. Like I got to go to my dad's tax meetings as like a 10 year old, mm. like probably the most boring meeting. I sat in the corner, <laughs> didn't do anything. Yep. Like, complete waste of time for me but like through that osmosis like you start learning things like learned what depreciation schedules were and all these different accounting terms and like how to financially manipulate things to pay less taxes yep and then like our reward was we'd go shopping because my dad would always do it at the end of the year so we'd go Christmas shopping and then go get lunch but like for me that was so cool just be able to hang out with your dad and go do Christmas shopping and lunch yep and that's awesome stuff like that that you just don't get to do with um or i guess now looking back most kids don't get to do that right. with their parents yep is there like a book a course a podcast uh um any any self-help or personal development or real estate type material that you would recommend that everybody read is there like one or two that you would give to people book wise or podcast wise um 
Yeah, I mean, I think probably a lot of your listeners probably suggest like Bigger Pockets. I mean, that one's mm-hmm. pretty influential. Um, they've got a lot of great material that's for free. And YouTube's another like amazing source. Same as Google University. I mean, you just pop <laughs> on the old computer. Um, as far as books, um, I think a lot of people would probably say like Rich Dad, Poor Dad's always a good one. It was ingrained in me, so it's kind of like second nature when I read it. It was like, oh, it makes pretty good sense. But I could see why it's very influential for a lot of people. Um, I don't think there's any other books that were like super influential mm-hmm. on the real estate side. I really liked uh, Buy Then Build by Walker Dibel, mm-hmm. but that's more on like business acquisition side. And so I just thought that was like kind of like that next double, next step up from real estate was just kind of learning about like businesses and like sometimes going bigger is almost easier because you have more systems already. Yeah. You have a lot of systems in place and then usually you have a larger like margin of error. Yep. I know. So like when we went from like zero to 16 units, um, like we had margin of error, like two to three, like vacant units or when you buy like one single family house, like it's a hundred percent or no percent. Yep. And so sometimes that can be scarier because it's a hundred or nothing. Yep. I know it's interesting how like uh, sometimes going bigger is better. And then like building a business from scratch is not as easy as like tweaking a business that's already running. Cause I've noticed that I'm way better at adjusting a process that's already been there instead of creating that process from scratch. That is not as easy as people would think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's where uh, like the buy them build book, it really talks into like buying businesses that are already established. It makes a lot of sense. So like what was, what I thought was so cool in that one was it was saying like businesses that do like a million dollars in revenue, like you're in the top 4% of businesses in the entire United States. Out of the 30 million small businesses, like you're top 4% just by doing a million dollars in revenue. What, when was that written? Uh, I think he wrote that in 2018. Oh my gosh. And so he talked about like just buying like a small business that already has like a few million dollars in revenue. You're already like top 2% of companies, top 4% of companies. And then like you already have like process in place. Like you might have managers, you have employees. Wow. Like you're not being the sole guy that has to do everything. Like you can bounce ideas off of like your seven to 30 employees that you have. Yep. And that's a whole lot easier to manage, even though you have like management headaches of people, but like the processes and like you could have an employee leave you and you're probably still going to be okay. Yep. Or well, like it's easier starting, yeah. to plug it in the next time because yeah, in the beginning it was very difficult to create that process. But again, now you've got somebody, you saw what they did well, you saw what they didn't do well and you have all the processes. So now when the next person comes in, you're not just making it up, you're bam, you're putting them back into the spot that was already filled. And so you can tell them, Hey, this is where the last person didn't do well. This is where they did do well. And you already have it. And yeah, yeah you, gives them pretty easy left and right limits of kind of yep. what to do. And then it's kind of, you make those tweaks and modifications. Like you're saying, it's a whole lot easier than yep. thinking like, okay, like what I want to have them do. Yep. Yeah. We keep bringing people on and then I'm trying to create the process for them. And it's kind of like uh, figuring out, okay, they're going to take this off my plate or they're going to take it off another person's. And then it's like, where's the break? And it's like intermingling them. And it's like, it's extremely difficult to figure out but once it gets figured out, it's going to be great. And then we got the systems, but it would be a lot nicer. Like you said, buy the business. It's already created. Everybody has their roles. It's very black and white. And then if you see some stuff, you can just tweak it. You're suggesting minor things that like can make it go a lot bigger than creating it all from scratch. Yeah, Love absolutely. It. 
Tyler and Dakota are going to start a Shark Tank. They're going to be angel investors in the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You I, guys already have the vehicle. Just let me steer it for you. Yeah. <laughs> I could definitely see that. I, I, I would love to buy businesses and stuff. So last question we usually ask. Uh, before that, make sure you leave this a five-star review if you're getting value out of this podcast. Something that we forget to do. And uh, it helps the channel. Helps mm-hmm. us grow. Mm-hmm. But uh, final question, deep question. Tyler already did his research. He knows what's coming. So, uh, Tyler, you're 100 years old. You're on your deathbed. And uh, you have a final message to the world. could be a paragraph, a mantra, a sentence. But it's going to be your legacy. It's going to be something that you think the world needs to hear. Uh, what is your message? Oh, man, that, that one's deep. And I was kind of doing it. So I had two different trains of thought. Um, so I don't know if you want me to share both of them. Yeah. Or Okay. No, just one, dude. This is just, <laughs> just one. You only got so enough. I got one sentence. Yeah, like you, it's my last breath. You've only got like, enough breath for one. We no, have 30 seconds. <laughs> Go. <laughs> All right. So uh, kind of what came to mind is like what's been influential for me was like find what you're good at and focus on that. Like so many people are like, oh, man, like you suck at this. So like you should be better and start really like working on what you're not good at. And I think taking the opposite approach work on what you're good at and like do that solely. So like I'm good with numbers and I'm good with like finding stuff and find other people to fill the gaps that you don't have. Mm-hmm. So that's where like partnerships for me have been like super key. Like everything I've bought in has been partnerships. And so like I'm good at the math. I'm good at like finding the properties and then like the down payments and some of the marketing stuff that we do. Like I let other people handle that. Yep. And I think that's probably the biggest thing is just, like, do what you're good at. Love it. If you want to partner with us, let us know. All right. What's the other one? Or we're just joking when you can't say both of them. Yeah, yeah, you can (laughs) take the other one, too. (laughs) So the other one was uh, this last summer, uh, or this summer, we had had two of my grandparents pass away, and then we had to go see a bunch of family and all that. So, like, we took a month off from being here in Fort Wayne, and we were remote for an entire month. And so during that time period, I had, like, the epiphany of, like, taking your tasks and moving into, like, maintenance tasks that keep your business alive and then tasks that are, like, growth-oriented that could be pushed off into the future that don't influence your life. So, like, taking time and dividing it into, like, what is meaningful to keep my business alive and what is it just more, like, making it more efficient and growing the business and being able to try to separate those tasks and being able to focus on the priorities at the time that you're in it. Like it. That's awesome, man. How can our listeners get a hold of you? Yeah, probably the um, easiest way would be like Facebook, um, Tyler Derrickson. Um, no extra letters in there. I thought maybe there's an extra R. Or like No, it's a D-E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably the easiest one. Um, yeah, we'll just go with that. <laughs> I like it. Any final thoughts you want to share with our viewers? No, thank you so much for uh, having me on the podcast. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah. Thank you guys for watching. Hope you guys like the three cameras. If you liked them, again, like Tony said, please leave us a five-star review. And if you didn't like them, also leave a five-star review. Yeah, let us know by leaving (laughs) us a five-star review that you didn't like it. See you guys on the next one. Peace out.